1450 on the AM dial, WKXL 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in the Manchester area. Welcome to Kale & Company. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive at 124 Store Street in Concord. You can call them for an appointment right now at 603-225-7988, or you can do it online at weedfamilyautomotive.com. And always happy to have joining us on the program, the Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org, Anna Brown. Anna, how are you today? Good morning, Ken. I'm doing well, thank you. Well, great to have you with us as always. And uh, right off the bat, I just want to ask you, is is COVID continuing to be the number one issue in the state of New Hampshire? Is that what's on the mind of most it's, people still these days? Well, it's so interesting because we, I have this excellent sort of barometer of public interest in COVID because we have this one page on our website that tracks all of the governor's policy actions related to COVID-19. And we will see spikes on that page anytime there is a spike in cases or sudden policy changes. And just as swiftly as it went up around the holidays, we're seeing traffic on that page going back down again. So, which is not to say that COVID is a non-issue, but it definitely seems that with the Omicron variant, with the slow march towards spring, although I know it still seems kind of far away, interest is waning a little bit in that. And I definitely think that as we are heading into the next elections, although that is quite a ways off, I'm going to go ahead and and throw out there, I think that voters are going to be more interested in issues such as uh, inflation, abortion, affordable housing, perhaps, and uh, voting laws. And COVID probably is, is not going to be that number one issue that it was last year or the year before. Yeah, it's almost uh, two years now that uh, we've been talking about COVID. And, uh, well, I guess, uh, you know, it's still up there, but not quite number one anymore. But uh, and, and hopefully it'll stay that way. Hopefully. The one, yeah, hope, hopefully. I will say, though, also, there is still, of all of the bills that were proposed for the 2022 legislative session in New Hampshire, the one single topic that had the most bill proposals by four was COVID. So even if the public's interest is sort of waning, maybe we have things better, you know, it's going in the right direction. There are dozens upon dozens of bills related to vaccine mandates, mask mandates, who can and can't put them in place, uh, the vaccine registry, whether it's opt-in or opt-out and what the process is there. So the legislature is still pretty preoccupied with that issue for sure. Well, I guess so. And, And speaking of the legislature, I recently looked on your website uh, citizenscount.org, and saw 39 pages on your website dedicated to bills that are still active mm-hmm. in the legislature. And uh, as usual, many of them seem somewhat frivolous, maybe more than somewhat <laughs> frivolous. Uh, what are some of the more uh, serious bills being considered by the New Hampshire legislature at the moment? Oh, serious. I was hoping you were going to start by asking me the hot dog condiment bill. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. Wait a minute. What was that? Oh, there's a bit. I, I will be honest, I still have not deeply dug into this issue, but there is a bill that I have been amused by since the beginning of the legislative session that is related to regulating fresh hot dog condiments at hot dog stands. So things such as chili and sauerkraut, for example, are very specifically mentioned along with beans and fresh vegetables. So there's, there's someone has a story there about hot dogs that I'll have to dig into. There's always 
there's always a few bills that just you just know there's a story when you look at the title. Uh, but serious bills, serious bills, of course, there's there's no shortage of those. And so, are they serious? By, by the way, before we get into some of the some of the real serious bills, one legislator proposed to cut the salary of our state representatives to two cents a year instead of two hundred dollars per session. Is that uh, is that a, a serious bill? It, it, it yes. Although I will say that I'm not sure that a hundred dollars a year versus two cents a year it's, it does is that making a really really huge difference in the in the pocketbooks of legislator legislators. Realistically, we still have a virtually volunteer legislator legislature. Yeah. They get a hundred dollars a year plus mileage. So you know, there's a little bit to help them. But to think of all the time also that you're sitting in a committee room or the House chamber, or in this case, this year because of COVID, uh, the Doubletree Convention Center in Manchester, and you're not able to be working. Maybe you have to pay for child care. So it's it's not really, you can't really do it for profit. It would be, I'm trying to think, it would be incredibly difficult, not to mention unethical, to somehow wiggle a profit out of being a state legislator in New Hampshire. But yes, that, that is a proposal. There's also alternate proposals, though, for example, to, to look at if there could be some sort of income-based stipend for low-income legislators. And in the past, we've also seen various bills come through looking to study the issue of child care options mm-hmm. for state legislatures. Yeah. So, so really, these bills, though, usually don't go anyway in either direction. They don't seem to go through. I think that New Hampshire is definitely very committed to the very unique large citizen volunteer legislature. Well, it's the, it's the, what, the third largest legislative body in the world? English-speaking world. English-speaking English world. So, speaking you know, world. that includes, okay. I, I know, for example, we're behind India, um, and obviously the U.S. Congress, does, the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. does have more than 400. But, oh. yeah, we, we wipe any other states off the map. We're almost double at the size of any other state legislature, even though we are a very small state. But this is why you run into your state representative at Dunkin' Donuts and the grocery store and at town parades and all that. So it ideally really increases access. But then you do also get thousands of bills every two years, which can be a lot for people to track. And then you get some 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 slightly oddball ones, for sure. No no doubt about that, including the, the hot dog condiment bill that is out there right now. But what are some of the more serious ones, uh, Anna Brown? So, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, there are definitely bills related to... COVID-19, particularly vaccinations, that are stoking a lot of intense debate. And so some of them are looking to say no mandates whatsoever. Some of them are looking to open up who can offer mandates. For example, the University of New Hampshire, under a state law passed last year, is not allowed to implement vaccine mandates. And there are some legislators who are sponsoring a bill that wants to say, nope, the university can do that. There's also an interesting bill that's actually coming up for a Senate vote on February 16th. That's, that will be Wednesday. That's today. And that bill is going to allow health insurers to offer incentive to get a COVID-19 vaccine. And that's an interesting concept coming through. We'll see if that sticks in the Senate because the argument on one side is that, okay, this is the opposite of a mandate. This is an incentive. This could maybe just encourage people to do it. Health insurers also might want to do it if the COVID-19 vaccine saves them money in the long term with more serious COVID-19 cases. But people on the other side say, all right, this is basically using money to bribe or coerce people into getting the vaccine. So that one is a debate that has gotten less attention, but I think is going to be interesting on the margin. So, so how, all, would, how would that work, uh, Anna? Well, it's they're leaving the bill basically is an enabling bill. Mm-hmm. So it would leave it open to health insurers 
how they wanted to structure it, what it would look like, whether it's a, a discount on your plan or, or some little monetary incentive or gift or something like that. And so the, the testimony that I read for that hearing is basically, this may also not be illegal at this point, but the, this legislation would make clear, no, health insurers can definitely do this if they want to. Mm. But it wouldn't be a penalty against someone. So then that's the important difference. It wouldn't be that if you don't get the vaccine, you have to pay more. This would be specifically, if you do get the vaccine, you get some sort of incentive. You know, that has been tried, hasn't it, in, in uh, various places where... You know, like uh, tickets to sporting events have been offered or different kinds of incentives uh, have been offered to people in the past uh, to get the vaccine. There was a lot of vaccine lotteries in some states. And Governor Sununu said he didn't want to do that in New Hampshire because he he was on that side of, all right, we don't want to be sort of persuading people with money. We want to persuade them based on the merits of the vaccine itself. There was also the whole controversy with Krispy Kreme offering free donuts. Right. Personally, right. I was just disappointed there wasn't a Krispy Kreme closer to my house because I would have loved a free donut. <laughs> but so we'll see how that plays out with, you know, because once again, it's, it's different than a mandate. It's, it's a slightly different approach. And we'll see how legislators respond to that. Well, Anna Brown, when you get some spare time, I want you to do an investigative report on why we don't have any Krispy Kremes in New England. Forget New Hampshire, in New England, other than uh, three or four at Mohegan Sun, the casino in Connecticut. Those, that's the only place you can get a Krispy Kreme donut in New England. It, it's a true tragedy. It's a true <laughs> tragedy, culinary tragedy. And I will definitely have to do some investigative research on that for you, Ken. Okay. What, what other bills are up in front of the, uh, the legislature? So in the, on the House side, there are two different bills related to marijuana legalization that are going to be getting a lot of attention. And so HB 1468 would legalize marijuana without sales or, or anything like that. So basically, you could possess it, you could use it, but there wouldn't be that giant infrastructure of stores and everything like that. And that has a recommendation from committee to get killed, and it probably will. And then on the other side, you have HB 1598, and this legalizes marijuana, but within the context of sort of like, kind of like state-run liquor stores, except it would be for marijuana. So this bill also includes some stricter penalties in terms of saying you can't smoke at all while you're driving, there's no public consumption, and it's being framed as a compromise between people who are really concerned about making marijuana legal and all the criminal justice and potential implications and people who have been wanting to legalize marijuana for years. Because there are some strict penalties, like I said, in terms of public consumption and driving while smoking, and it would be all be under state control. So what remains to be seen is can Governor Sununu get on board with this bill? The House already passed a different marijuana legalization bill earlier this year that allowed home growing and personal consumption without any sales, and it passed by a veto-proof majority. But it'll probably hit a roadblock in the Senate, whereas this bill that has revenue for the state, state control, harsher criminal penalties in some cases, could probably move forward in the Senate unless the new says, nope, I'm still against it, I'm still going to veto it. Because thus far, even though there's been a lot of public support for marijuana legalization and bills have passed the legislature before, the Nunu has just been a hard line on the veto. So it'll be interesting to see if he has comments and also if the bill passes with a supermajority, which could indicate, you know, his veto won't matter. It'll go through anyway. Well, you have your, your finger on the pulse uh, of the state as as much as, as anyone does. Uh, how do you feel the, the, the general public 
is, is reacting to uh, the legalization of, of marijuana? Are, are most uh, what what's uh, what's the feeling you get in, in that regard? Most of the polls show that there really is overwhelming support at this point for marijuana legalization, and I think that was a big shift, especially when all of the states around us, Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, also Canada, allowed recreational sales. Because there's this feeling that, well, even if I was personally against it before, everyone in the state can just hop in their car less than an hour and get legal marijuana from that state. And now we also have people driving it across our state borders. Are they smoking it in the car? Questions like that. So the feeling is, well, if everybody else is doing it, we might as well get a slice of the pie, Uh, which is a little bit cynical, but it is true. We're a small state, and when you're surrounded on all sides by people offering legal marijuana, it makes it much harder to make the argument that, you know, we're we're keeping our state safe and and we're we're keeping legal marijuana out of our borders. It's it's becoming pretty easily accessible and ubiquitous in the region of New England. So, yeah, I think the public could get behind it, which is interesting because there are also a few marijuana legalization proposals this year that would put it in the Constitution, which is a very unusual Mm. position in terms of how you would go about making policy. But it would basically be a way to get around Governor Sununu. Yeah, a constitutional amendment, it has to pass the House and Senate by a supermajority, three-fifths, and then it goes straight to the public. And so the public would have an opportunity to vote on it next November. And like I've said, given what we see in many, many different public opinion polls, it would almost certainly go through. And then we would have legal marijuana use in, in the New Hampshire Constitution. So that's another way of legalizing that I could see potentially going forward this year, even if the legislature ends up pulling back on that bill that would give sort of state control and, and more criminal penalties to legalize marijuana. Uh, a constitutional amendment for marijuana. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you know, right up there along with our, you know, right to bear arms and, and freedom yeah. of expression, it would have a right to right to use marijuana. You know, stranger things have happened, I suppose, uh, in the past few years, certainly. I, I guess so. How often is our constitution in New Hampshire amended? Well, this is a little bit of a quirk of New Hampshire history, because We have many constitutional amendments proposed every year. I'd say maybe about a dozen, Mm -hmm. but they do have that higher threshold with a supermajority going through. So you won't see them very often on the ballot, but every couple of years. And listeners may remember it was back in, I think it was just 2018, when there was the amendment on the ballot that would establish a right of privacy. And that passed and that went through. And then there's been debate since then about what exactly that right to privacy really encompasses and how far it goes. So it's not that uncommon. And here's the quirk of New Hampshire history. Our Constitution was written so that every 10 years, voters get to say on the ballot, should we have a whole constitutional convention, which is basically everyone coming together. And at that point, everything's on the table. You could write the whole, rewrite the whole document if you wanted (laughs) to. So they will get, voters will get that question posed to them again. This November, so they should be ready. If they want a constitutional convention, now there's moments. Uh, when was the last one? <laughs> the last constitutional convention was, uh, yeah, voters usually say no to that yeah. one. The, back, the, the last one I want to say was back in the 1970s, I believe. I'm, I'm you know, challenging myself now because I think it was the 1970s, but now I'm in doubt. So definitely consult Google and your favorite New Hampshire historian, but it has been several decades since New Hampshire has had the convention. Yeah, it might be kind of fun. I mean, it could be fun. It could be crazy. <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? But we haven't had one in a while. That That is for sure. Uh, Anna Brown yeah. is with us from uh, Citizens Count, the Director of Research and Analysis for 
citizenscountcitizenscount.org. So what else is uh, facing the legislature this week? Well, there are definitely some bills and debates that are coming up related to education freedom account. That was another very hot issue when we saw bill requests coming in this year. Many, many proposals that are looking to either limit funding for the program since it came the fund, right now, the, the requests, the scholarships that are going out, totally blew out, out of the water the original estimate of how many students were going to sign up for this program. So there's bills to limit funding. There are bills that would add additional oversight in the Department of Education, additional requirements for providers who are getting funds from the state to provide education services, whether or not students in this program should take standardized tests or have other specific reviews. And I should back up because I realize I'm talking about education freedom accounts as if listeners are right up to speed on that because it's been such a debate. I've been in this for weeks. Education freedom accounts was a program passed as part of the last state budget, and it allows students up to a certain income level to apply to the state for their share of per pupil state education funding as a scholarship to spend on private home ed- homeschooling other education expenses, maybe special education services at a special with a private contractor or something like that. And advocates say, all right, this is great because it's going to provide kids more opportunities to get the education best tailored to them, especially in light of COVID and and remote learning and all that. Opponents say this is basically a a voucher program. It's it's taking public school funding away and funneling it to private, uh, private citizens, private schools, potentially even religious schools without enough public oversight of how those funds are getting spent. And so it's a hot, hot issue in the yeah. legislature this year. And in fact, the House will be voting, if not Wednesday, then Thursday, on HB 1684, which is a bill that would limit education freedom account funding to whatever is budgeted, since that was an issue coming in this first year where there was so much more than demand than was expected that there's a lot of money going to be flowing out. And of course, opponents of that bill say, why would you restrict students who want access to this program? That would hurt the students, not the state. So expect a heated debate on that one for sure. Mm, absolutely so. So uh, anything else that uh, we should know about uh, that, that will be taking place uh, on, on Wednesday, the 16th? Well, there are going to be a couple bills related to voting, and I don't think there will be major changes, but it'll be interesting to watch. So one of them, HB 1482, would establish ranked choice voting in New Hampshire. And so that is a little bit of a mm. complex <laughs> concept to explain quickly. But basically the idea is you could choose your first, second, and third choice, say, and there's an instant runoff so that if Everybody's first choice, if there's not a clear winner of over 50%, then you start counting second choices and so on. We actually have an article on our website. We did a podcast episode about it. It's been getting a lot of interest, especially after the New York mayoral election, as maybe a way that we can sort of break through that two-party system, or especially in primaries where you have a lot of candidates and someone ends up winning, even though they only get maybe 30% of the vote or something. So HB 1482 would establish procedures for ranked choice voting for federal and state offices in New Hampshire. The committee is recommending that the House kill the bill, so I don't think it will go forward. But it's there were three different ranked choice voting bills proposed this year, and I don't think the issue is going away. So I think this is just going to be the beginning mm. of that debate. Yeah. And elections, obviously, really zesty issue right now across the board, whether you're looking at access to the ballot box, absentee voting, concerns about lack of security or fraud. And so HB 1484 is also up for a vote. That was sponsored by Seabrook State Representative Tim Baxter, who is running for Congress. And he definitely highlighted this bill as 
a part of his campaign because it would require a forensic audit of the 2020 election. And the, the whole committee, 19 to 0, voted that the bill should be killed because it's not clear what the cost would be, how it would be funded, what the scope would be, who would conduct the audit, what would be involved in the audit. So pretty resounding recommendation against, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. But even though Governor Sununu says we have very secure elections in New Hampshire, former Secretary of State Bill Gardner echoed that. Current Secretary of State Dave Scanlon echoes that. We have secure elections. There's not widespread fraud. We have a very secure system. Uh, Nonetheless, you're going to see more and more bills like this coming through, I think, so long as there is, is rhetoric and misinformation about how elections work in New Hampshire, which, to be clear... Our, our voting machines are not connected to the internet. We use all paper ballots, so there's always a paper record. And that was how they actually encountered, for example, in Wyndham, there was a discrepancy between the hand recount by the Secretary of State with those paper ballots and the machines. And it was because of how they had folded ballots with the machines. So New Hampshire, we have had those little things, but they get caught, and it's partly because we use these old-school paper systems. Anna Brown is with us from uh, Citizens Count citizenscount.org. She is the Director of Research and Analysis. We have to take a quick break, and uh, we will be back right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Weed Family Automotive of Concord. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company. Great to have you with us today on AM 1450 WKXL 103.9 FM in the Capital Region. 101.9 FM in the Manchester area. We're presented by Weed Family Automotive of Concord. And Anna Brown is uh, joining us today. We always love to check in with Anna. And in the previous uh, segment, uh, we talked about, uh, or you talked about, ranked choice, which uh, is being employed or has been employed uh, in New York. Uh, What other states, uh, are there any others that uh, employ uh, ranked choice in, in their elections? Well, our neighbors to the east in Maine have used ranked choice voting. And so they definitely provide an example of how it might go through and how it can be a little quirky sometimes. I think that ranked choice voting has a lot of promise in terms of letting people be more specific about their preferences, right? Because sometimes you go into the ballot box and you feel like, this is who I want to vote for, but I don't think they're going to win, and I'm afraid it's going to take away votes from this other candidate who could be this person who I really hate. Then you do this, this mental calculus. Whereas ranked choice voting, you could just say first choice, second choice, third choice, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but, uh, but the other thing that we have to be careful about is there's all this rhetoric right now about election security and how important that is. And sometimes it seems that if people just don't understand how the election system works, that can be a problem. It'll lead to more accusations, well, I'm not sure this is fair, I don't know how it works, it, uh, if it's mysterious, you know, then you could maybe lead to more accusations that it's not a fair or clear result. So that's the risk. But yeah, Maine absolutely does it. And like I said, there are different municipalities and areas such as New York City mm-hmm. that have tried it. So uh, like I said, it's going to be like a three bills this year coming through proposed. So it's not a debate that's going anywhere. Uh, now, does Maine use it for all of their elections? My understanding is that they use it for all state and federal primary elections, and then they started the general elections for Congress in 2018. Mm, interesting. I, I did not know that ranked choice uh, was in vogue in Maine. So uh, uh, that's uh, good to know. You learn something. I learn something every time I do this show, especially with you, uh, Anna Brown. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, just around the, the last time uh, you were on this show, I know you wrote an article that appeared in the Concord Monitor and elsewhere regarding the proposal for New Hampshire to secede uh, from the Union yeah. and uh, proceed as a sovereign nation. So where, where, yeah. where does that uh, legislation stand at the moment? Yes, so that was also a constitutional amendment. We spoke earlier in this in this segment about how that would get passed. It would require a supermajority in the House, supermajority in the Senate, and then over 50%, you know, supermajority also of voters. So is that going to happen? I No. I mean, you, there's no way you're going to get... It's barely split between Republicans and Democrats in the House. There's no way you're going to get that supermajority to pass a constitutional amendment and pass it on to the voters. But what's really remarkable here is that, yes, that conversation around secession and the new free state, the whole free state movement has been a conversation that's been in New Hampshire for over a decade now, but this is the first time we've seen legislation trying to put legislators on the record of their opinion of if New Hampshire should be part of the United States of America or not. So that, to me, is what's remarkable, is that this is now risen to the level that there is a formal legislative debate going on. Yeah, and uh, I think we know where that's going to go. Yeah, I imagine it's, it's <laughs> going to get voted down, and that'll, that'll be it for this year. But, you know, like I said, a, a roughly 1,000 bills every year, it's probably going to come back again at this point. Yeah, no, no question about it. Uh, state Republicans uh, last week talking about uh, revenue projections for the biennium showing a surplus of 283.8 million dollars. Is that just political spin or is that true? Well, there are two. It, yes, it's true, <laughs> but there's also context to put it in. So, New Hampshire has seen incredible surges, for example, in business tax revenue that with. The, all the stimulus funds coming in from the federal government, that's not counted into that number surplus. That's not, that's, so the surplus is coming from tax revenue from businesses. But it's certainly true that all that federal spending that came in stimulated the economy. We've all seen the economy running really hot right now with lots of spending. And also, of course, restaurants coming back in business. A lot of people were traveling in New Hampshire last summer and spending yeah. money at hotels and rental cars and all that. Also, we've seen record high real estate prices which means that taxes from that coming in are, are also a little high. But the, the context that you also have to throw out there is, is budget writers were very conservative in their estimates for revenue, which makes sense because COVID's going on. Now we're, I mean, what's going to happen with the Ukraine and Russia? How could that impact the economy? So it makes sense that budget writers would be very conservative saying, eh, let's go on the low end of estimates for what we think we're going to bring in for revenue. So revenue is absolutely very high, but it also is extremely high when you compare it to very low and conservative estimates that they came up with when they were writing the budget. So everything has to be put into context then, right? And Always, uh, yeah. always. <laughs> the, the question, of course, is what you're going to do with the extra revenue. Because right, yeah. If the spending in a budget matches what you expect to get for revenue. And so when you have this big surplus, you know, are you going to cut taxes? Are you going to do one-time investment in maybe school building upgrades or water infrastructure or road repairs or just sending it back to local towns, letting them decide how they're going to spend it? Because New Hampshire has a long history of giving towns money from the state to do to cut local proper taxes or repair roads or what have you, work on schools, whatever, but then also pulling that back when there's a recession or revenue isn't as high. So I think probably some money is going to go be going back to local towns. Governor Sununu tends to favor what he calls one-time one investments. You know, basically it's not going to 
permanently be a new expenditure or a permanent tax increase, basically a one-time infusion. So I'm sure towns will be happy for that, but it, you know, it's a one-time. It's no guarantee. They can't budget around that forever. Yeah, right. But it is it is nice to have, if if only for once. But uh, so that being said, that we have that uh, surplus of almost two hundred eighty-four million dollars. Uh, what is being done these days to uh, you know help uh, with affordable housing uh, in the state? This is such a key issue right now because we all know that yes, <laughs> real estate prices are going through the roof, rental rates on average going through the roof. And in New Hampshire, particularly, we have an aging population and a workforce shortage. And you can't bring more workers in, bring more young people in that working age in unless you have places that they can afford to live while they're working. So Governor Sununu has alluded to he might be addressing this Thursday in his state of the state. And there are several bills that are looking to address this in one form or another. The biggest bill is SB 400. And it's virtually identical to a bill that came through last year. It's a huge package that's a combination of training for local officials, tax incentives, access to new funding programs, changing certain zoning requirements. So last year it hit a snag in the House, even though it sailed through the Senate, had the support of Governor Sununu, hit a snag in the House because of concerns that this would infringe on local control, it might be unfair, who gets funds. And basically the house took this stance that we just have to leave this affordable housing issue to localities right now. We just, it just has to stay at the town level. Of course, we all know the problem is if you have a bunch of individual towns just kind of doing their own thing, affordable housing is a regional issue, right? You're going to have people commuting from different parts of the state. If you have a bunch of towns that just shut down new development because they're concerned about outgrowing infrastructure or whatever, okay, well, then where are the workers going to go? It's, it's a definitely a state-level concern. As I said, Governor Sununu has said that this is something that the state needs to be looking at. It's a very complex, very big issue. So SB 400, that seems to be the big package. And so that will be coming up for a vote in the Senate sometime soon. But I'm really going to be watching what's going to happen to it in the House. Because in the Senate, once again, pretty much no one testified against it. There seem to be a lot of generally favorable, yes, affordable housing is, is a crisis right now. It's something we need to do. But when it comes to that nitty-gritty, when you have 400 representatives, I don't know. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Anna Brown is with us from Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. You can see them on Facebook as well and participate in some of the questions that they pose. Always very interesting. Anna is the director of uh, research and analysis for Citizens Count. And always great to have her with us. We'll take a quick break on Kale and Company and be back right here on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Welcome back. It's Kale and Company at uh, AM 1450 WKXL 1039 in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in the Manchester area. Presented by Weed Family Automotive of Concord, weedfamilyautomotive.com. Anna Brown with us, the Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And uh, Anna, what is the story behind the story? You're, you're well-connected. House Minority Leader Rennie Cushing uh, releasing a public letter last week telling uh, fellow Democrats in his caucus, and I quote here, please do not talk to the New Hampshire Journal, end quote. What's, what's that all about? 
Oh, goodness. This one is a bit of a long saga. There has been some turmoil in the Democratic caucus in the House, to be fair. There's frequent turmoil in both parties in the House, because once again, you have 400 state representatives. Previous speakers have compared it to herding cats. (laughs) But recently, there have been some more progressive representatives in particular who have uh, changed their party affiliation to independent because they are not happy with how the party leadership is operating. They aren't happy with certain policy changes, for example. But the most recent big event was that several black indigenous people of color came forward. Leaders of various organizations in the state, such as Right and Democracy, came forward and said Representative Nicole Klein-Knight from Manchester was in an altercation with a citizen in the hallway where she yelled the N-word multiple times. We've tried to address this. Leadership has not responded. So we're writing a public letter and there will be an ethics complaint and all that. So um, thereafter that, (laughs) you know, different people were talking to different people in the press. There have also been screenshots of comments and messages flying around on Twitter that I have seen. And so Representative Cushing's request that they not talk to New Hampshire Journal was no doubt in response to the fact that there were some comments from representatives in the journal about what was going on with Representative Nicole Klein-Knight and this back and forth and this controversy about whether, you know, sort of old guard traditional uh, Democrats in the state party are hostile to young advocates when it comes to racial justice, for example, and, and whether there is racism in the Democratic Party in New Hampshire. So uh, I think that it's definitely a moment for the party where they are trying to create that unified front, that unified caucus moving forward, which in this case means that they don't want people to talk. The New Hampshire Journal in particular was highlighted because they do have a conservative lean. Um, But I think that if, if the reporters had talked to a different outlet, it probably would have been a message just saying, you know, please don't talk about this in the press, maybe, because it's, that's really what it is. I feel like it's a very messy, difficult situation. And it's, it's, I, I'm glad that I am not in a leadership position having to deal with that because it, it's intense. And, and it will remain to be seen how this plays out in front of the ethics committee in the House. Probably something akin to uh, Nancy Pelosi telling uh, her, her Democrats uh, not to talk to Fox News, something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I would be okay getting on board with that sort of analogy. Yeah. Okay. We'll use that as, a, as, as an analogy right there. So let's let's talk about the race for uh, incumbent Chris Pappas' uh, first congressional district seat. Uh, at last count, there were six uh, declared candidates uh, that we know about, right? Uh, Gail Huff-Brown, Matt Mowers, Caroline Levitt, uh, State Representative Tim Baxter. There's a couple more. Is there a clear-cut leader uh, at the moment? I would say no. I think that this is going to be a pretty spicy, contentious race because when you look at Tim Baxter, Matt Mowers, and Caroline Levitt, they are all very uh, Trump-supporting candidates, and they're very forward in talking about continuing with former President Trump's agenda and the, the priorities he had talking about um, concerns about election fraud, for example, as I mentioned, Representative Tim Baxter was the one who had fired, uh, filed the bill requesting an audit of the 2020 election in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which 
as I said, committee unanimously did not recommend pass, but nonetheless. So you have three candidates who all would appear to be trying to appeal to that same wing of the Republican Party, right? That that sort of Trump ethos and his personality and all that. Then on the other side, you do have Gail Huff Brown in particular, I would say is sort of playing a more moderate position. So she perhaps doesn't have competition for that wing of the Republican Party, but at the same time, so you have three people maybe more on the Trump side of the party and then Gail Huff Brown more on the moderate side of the party. Well, that's four people, and you don't know which one of the more Trump candidates will come out on top if one of them could get an endorsement from the former president, for example. Or do you think that then they'll sort of split the vote of that side of the party and it'll go to Gail Huff Brown, who's more moderate? And as you mentioned, there are a handful of other candidates as well who are lesser known. But, for example, Robert Burns and Julian Atchard. So there is not a front runner as far as I can tell. I will say Matt Maurer definitely is a powerful fundraiser. He ran last time against Chris Pappas, so he might have a little help in terms of name recognition. But it's still way too early to call him any sort of front runner. But even Gail Huff Brown has uh, ties to, to Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, uh, her husband, Scott, uh, was an ambassador under former President Trump. So she even has ties to Trump. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Wouldn't that be a funny twist of events? Here I am talking about three candidates more on the Trump side, and then if she was the one who actually got a Trump endorsement, that was, man, it would just be chaos <laughs> at that point. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, that, it, that it would be. I, I guess the other question in terms of uh, political races are concerned, uh, is any Democrat going to step forward to challenge uh, Governor Sununu in his pursuit of a fourth term? I think that the Democrats, like the Republicans, were very caught off guard when Governor Sununu didn't decide to run for the U.S. Senate. So at that point, in previous years, we'd already had people like Andrew Walensky or Steve Marchand of Portsmouth had already thrown their hat in the ring and said, I'm running as the Democrat this year. So no one at that point was doing it because they all thought he was running for U.S. Senate. Now here we are. That that declaration is, is several months behind, a couple months behind us. The I have not said seen or heard confirmation that anyone is going to be running. There are rumors that Senator Tom Sherman might decide to step up and throw his hat in the ring, but that's not a sure thing. People have talked about maybe they'd love to bring back John Lynch mm-hmm. because he was, of course, a very popular Democrat, but from what I've seen and heard, he has no interest in stepping back into that. So it's a, it's a big question mark, but you can understand. Sununu in polls, very popular. In the last election against Senator Dan Feltis, very strong win, called pretty early in the night. So if you're a Democrat, you do probably have to be doing a little bit of personal mental calculus about your own future. And if you really think, you know, you have what it takes to, to take on a really popular governor, it, 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 it's daunting. It is daunting. And you'd also have to consider fundraising challenges as well, considering that we're well into 2022 at yeah. this point, And there's so many, so many months to raise money for your campaign ads. So you don't think uh, there's any way that uh, former Governor Lynch's arm could be twisted? I don't think so. I think that (laughs) Governor Lynch, you know, he does his campaigning with people such as Chris Pappas. You know, he's happy to to lend his support in that way. But he he served for several terms. And I, I think that as much as people would love him maybe to come back because they think, oh, he was really popular as governor, I think he's moved on. Anna Braun, I'm glad you haven't, but uh, hang on and hang with us just a few more minutes. We have to take a quick break here on uh, Kale and Company on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Weed Family Automotive.
Welcome back. We're heading down the home stretch of the program today with uh, Anna Brown. The time always flies when Anna is here. And uh, Anna is the uh, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And you can find them on uh, Facebook as well. And Anna, before we run out of time, you have a podcast that I want you to talk about briefly. Yes, our podcast is titled $100 Plus Mileage, which is a reference to what oodles of money you get as a state (laughs) legislator in New Hampshire. And each week, we try to focus on a somewhat lesser-known bill that might not be getting a lot of news coverage, but still could impact citizens. So we try to pick things that are maybe a little entertaining, things you haven't heard of, and you learn about how these issues, they always fit into larger policy conversations about what should we pay for as a society? How do we pay for it? What matters? Who gets involved in making these decisions? So last year, we touched on everything from Deliberty robots <laughs> to cyber flashing, regulations for tiny houses. This year, as I mentioned, we've talked about ranked choice voting. We touched on the question of secession, what the heck that would look like if it, you know, in terms of the proposal and how it could even go forward. But we're also looking, should parents be allowed to teach drivers education? Should New Hampshire ban cat decline? What about raw milk ice cream? Should that be allowed? So I, I would definitely encourage people to take a listen. They're, they're less than 15 minutes. We conclude every episode also with an only new, in New Hampshire kind of fun fact about our history that relates to, to the laws of the state and our government and who we are as a state. And hopefully you'll learn a little bit about, you know, how you can get involved in the legislature, too, and make your voice heard. So how do we access it? You can go to our website under Learn and Discuss. We have a link to our podcast. $100 plus mileage is also available available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we tweet it out whenever it comes out. We post it on Reddit. We'll post it on our Facebook page. So check us out in any of those places. And and also thank you to the Granite State News Collaborative, which, which hosts the podcast. We just have a couple of minutes left, and in the race to replace uh, U.S. Senator Maggie Hassan, there's still uh, just three uh, candidates. Uh, you have the uh, Senate President Chuck Morse, uh, Kevin Smith from Londonderry, and uh, General Don Bolduck. And uh, in a recent New Hampshire Institute of Politics poll, uh, General Bolduck came out on top as having the best chance to defeat Senator Hassan. The poll didn't say he would, but he would have the best chance. Were you surprised to hear that? Don, General Don Bolduck has a great advantage for himself right now, which is name recognition. Once again, this is a candidate who ran in a previous cycle. He's been running pretty much since then, so he's really been getting his name in front of voters. That doesn't shock me. Kevin Smith, Chuck Morse have been in New Hampshire politics for a long time, so they're going to have the advantages of those personal connections, which relate to fundraising and local outreach and motivating your party base, who is, of course, most likely to turn out for a primary vote. So general poll of the public, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. But I wouldn't say that he's run away with the race by any means, because I definitely think that as the summer comes, you're going to be seeing a lot more ads from all of these candidates. And Kevin Smith and Chuck Morris are both going to occupy probably a more moderate Republican stance than the former General Don Bolduck. And so I think that'll be interesting to see once again, when you're looking at those voices in the Republican Party, which voice is going to, you know, be taking over? Is it going to be about economics? Is it going to be more about those social issues like abortion? Is it going to be still focusing on the 2020 elections, which former President Trump is is so fixated on? I know that I've seen some some talk nationally that Republicans are thinking that we really need to shift and focus more on, you know, economic issues, inflation. So 
Kevin Smith and Chuck Morris both seemed to think that when they launched their campaign, it was a lot of commentaries about, you know, those kitchen table issues and budgeting. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's polls are early. Polls are early. It's a lot about just people not knowing names yet right. and, and the race is yet to come. Anna Brown, as always, a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for taking the time today. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Ken. Thanks for joining us here on Kale & Company on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com.